Eisenberg on WHMP. This is Salman Hamid's universe, a segment that we began once upon a time as Salman Hamid's ridiculously large and largely ridiculous universe. Salman Hamid is a Hampshire College professor and astronomer, and he is with us every month. Fortunately, this month, we don't have to take a couple of minutes to do our fish wrap because today's fish wrap is, in fact, what we want to talk to Salman Hamid, professor and astronomer, Salman Hamid, about, which is, well, Chinese balloons and UFOs and unidentified aerial, pheno aerial phenomenons, UAPs and aliens. Uh, before we get to that, Salman, uh, you were one of the leaders of the effort among faculty and the community to save Hampshire College a couple of years ago, a successful uh, effort to be sure. I'd appreciate if you take a minute before we get to Chinese balloons and UFOs. What's the status of Hampshire's resurgence? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you, Bill. Um, Hampshire uh, is sort of like, you know, uh, it's doing pretty good. I am um, sort of like, you know, I mean, it, I have to contextualize it. Uh, the news about small liberal arts colleges being closed or in trouble is, is, is around. And so I think it is in that context. I think Hampshire is a good positive story and in fact it can also provide uh, lessons i mean in some sense every college has unique issues and hampshire did as well but we believed in 2019 when the president at the time uh, tried to merge it close it uh, and and those type of things that it actually it has come up uh, well stronger but certainly there are challenges in there now what is the current status? Uh, current status is that we just had uh, last month the largest transfer class. So, like, you no, know, so we get some transfer students, uh, but we got. I mean, I mean, the numbers are still relatively small. It's around, I think, thirty-seven or so, or something like that. But it's the largest number of transfer students in Hampshire's history. So, I mean, certainly the things are. The word is getting out that uh, Hampshire is doing okay. Similarly right now we are going through uh, a strategic hiring phase and in fact hampshire is hiring nine new faculty members partly it's because of the gap that was left by some of the faculty who have left uh, for like you know because of the crisis people have to look for jobs at other places and things like that uh, and so nine new faculty hires uh, these are uh, i mean we don't have tenure but sort of like you know but equivalent to that 10 year uh, track that is uh, going on right now. So that's a big deal. And again, so these are the signs in some sense. And I think uh, that's probably what you were looking for in my answer as well. These are signs that we are on the right track. It is going uh, in the right thing. And also the goal was to raise $60 million uh, for sort of like, you know, uh, not towards its endowment, but sort of like, you know, raising its fund for it. And 40 million have been raised out of that 60 million. Uh, and uh, the goal is to raise the two more years in order to raise the rest of the 20 million. So all of those things in summary, I mean, shows that Hampshire is on a, a strong footing. 
That said, I mean, I would, I mean, I think, I, I, I don't want to give this impression that, oh, since 2019, everything has just been like, you know, great. Like, you know, no, it's, it's, a, it's a tough challenge because of the crisis, we did have to face a lot of serious challenges. We continue to face challenges. There are faculty that are there, a lot of faculty, staff, uh, a lot of sort of like, you know, people are working extra in order to cover uh, other faculty that are missing the people that left Hampshire because of the crisis. It wasn't a systematic or uh, sort of like, you know, uh, uh, leaving of the college, but rather whoever could find a job. And so there are gaps in the curriculum where there shouldn't be. However, just like the early days of Hampshire, and that's what we had always argued, that if we are going to come out of it, we have to build on to the spirit that Hampshire can do it. It's going to be messy. It's going to be innovative. It's going to be creative. Uh, but we are going to come out of it. It's going to be Hampshire-esque. Hampshire. The recovery is very Hampshire-esque. And, uh, and all I can say, again, all of those things come. People can argue about, well, okay, but so-and-so is not doing well, or X thing is not doing well. Yes, I mean, I think individually there are challenges, which you would expect if a college had a near-death experience in 2019. But the point is that the recovery is strong. It's going in the right direction. It's not going to be the exact same college that it was uh, perhaps five years ago, but it's going to be different. Better or worse, that's not the question. It's going to be different because I think the spirit of what Hampshireness is, I think that has been maintained and that is the key thing. And again, I, and I would reiterate, this is one of the ways, this is one of the very, very few examples where a college has survived closing a closure attempt or a merging attempt by administration. A lot of colleges are going through that. We are providing just like Hampshire wanted to do. So sort of like you know, these kind of models standing up to these kind of efforts. Here is another example where by its own survival, it is giving a lesson. Other colleges can potentially learn something from it as well. Yes, I really appreciate that. I appreciate all your efforts as does the community in fighting to preserve Hampshire. Listen, Professor Salman Hamid, I, I want to ask you about, well, let me make a confession first so our listeners know. Some years ago, I audited a course at Hampshire College taught by one professor and astronomer, Salman Hamid, the title of which was Aliens, Close Encounters of an Interdisciplinary Kind. And one of the aspects of the course, one of the pieces of the content of the course that we looked at were UFOs, unidentified flying objects that since then have become unidentified alien phenomenon, except when they are in fact unidentified flying objects because we know they're objects. And recently there have been a number of unidentified flying objects that the United States military shot out of the sky at 40,000 or 20,000 feet uh, we still don't know what they are, as far as I can tell. They are still UFOs. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, Bill, that ET who was trying to go home. <laughs> no, on a, on a serious, well, I don't know how should I say, on a serious note, well, maybe. No, this is, uh, I actually find it really sad. 
And I find it sad in the sense that um, we could be having a reasonable discussion about um, Chinese uh, uh, balloon and these other things, what those are. And that if then that conversation would have amounted to talk about, okay, well, different countries do surveillance, US does surveillance, Chinese, I mean, like, you know, there was in fact, a US spy plane cra uh, crashed into a Chinese uh, plane in, I think, 2001, which actually ended up uh, the pilot, Chinese pilot actually was killed at that time. So one of the things is that all countries do spy. So we could have had this conversation about, well, okay, Chinese spy plane was there. There are different types of spines and like that. And then the other thing would have been, well, for airplanes and stuff, you have to keep the sort of like, you know, certain area up in the sky, clear of debris, of uh, weather balloons, of uh, sort of like, you know, people flying things out there and how to do that. That in itself would have been a really good, useful and thoughtful uh, conversation. And it would have been complicated. Who authorizes things that go, that can go up, how high things can go, what kind of material, because people can actually buy material that can actually go up in space. They can use Wi-Fi or whatever. Unfortunately, because, and I am putting the blame squarely on New York Times, and that is because in 2017, they had a front page story that said that there were these, uh, the Department of Defense, Pentagon actually, had a unit that had studied UFOs that got closed down in 2012. The story was in 2017. And they talked about this program that had shut down in 2012 and there was a whistleblower and there were these pictures of Navy pilots from 2005. Right, I think four or five or something like that. Like, you know, they had seen something. But New York Times put that story on the front page of the new, uh, of like, you know, of a Sunday edition. That got a lot of attention. Yeah, kind of indicating to summarize it that UFOs are real. I mean, they are unidentified, but they are flying and they are objects and they're worth serious study and a lot of money from the Pentagon. And it was all a word that we can't say on the air. Right. But the, the problem was that, uh, first of all, it wasn't that much money because it was like, you know, I think 21 million or something like that. And Pentagon budgets, as we know, this is like nothing. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of, lot of issues with that story, including one of the big claims in that story, because I followed that closely because I was teaching aliens class. It was right after that. I remember actually it was in December uh, of 2017 that one of the claims in that 2017 New York Times article was that they had found artifacts. And they said that buildings had to be modified in order to house those artifacts. And one of the guys who was a former CIA official saying that, you know, that this, the artifacts are like you give uh, Leonardo da Vinci a garage opener. That's how puzzling it is. Okay, point is all of those things suggested that, wow, this is real. Now, two years later, there was a small retraction in one of the other UFO stories in which the New York Times said, oh, by the way, all those artifacts that turn out to be man-made and like, you know, in the lab. Okay, now, but, but Sam, but let me interrupt because um, you've made clear um, and you have previously on this show that these stories, these nonsensical 
science fiction kind of stories, including those promulgated by the New York Times erroneously and with bad reporting, um, have left a uh, residue of, about beliefs in UFOs. But in fact, what has been shot out of the sky meets, meets the definition. It's an unidentified, we don't know what it is, it's flying, it's up in space, and it's an object. All three of those things are true in this instance. So are we to s s surmise that these are, in fact, uh, spying uh, apparatus of some sort? Are we supposed to assume that they are uh, some kind of uh, uh, mechanical device created in the United States? What are we to make of those three? I, I want to hear what you have to say about the balloons. But before that, I'd really like to know what you think about these other objects that have been shot out of the sky and we don't yet have much, the government doesn't have much to say about what they were. So your, your view about those, those objects. Right, so let me close that loop down because it is connected to that. Because of that particular article and because of that notion, Congress held hearings on that and then Congress uh, asked Pentagon uh, to come up with sort of like an explanation for those things. Well, so there is this hysteria to a certain degree, partly, that, oh, there is something out there which we don't know. And so people are looking for it. Secondly, in this particular instance, now, I don't know what those three objects that were shot, that we don't know what they are, and the government is not saying what those are. I would say we don't know what they are. <laughs> but there is a huge jump. This is just like when we talk about, and I think we talked about it in class also, like, you know, if you see something in the sky and you don't know what it is, all you can say is you don't know what it is. The jump from saying, hey, I don't know what that is, to now that is a spacecraft from another alien civilization. That is a huge, huge leap for which there is absolutely no justification for that. Now, in this particular instance, I think one of the Senate, uh, and by the way, I should quote you what they had said uh, in, in, in one of the, um, um, I think, press briefings. They said it did not, these objects did not pose a danger to people on the ground, were not sending communication signals, did not have maneuvering or propulsion capabilities. Okay, then what is it? Well, certainly it's not an alien spacecraft. I mean, I would say, okay, well, I don't know, maybe garbage bag, maybe a blue, maybe something like so. Just, it could be some, anything. There are a lot more possibilities before it's an alien spacecraft from another civilization. Not to mention that it would be kind of weird that you have such advanced sort of like, you know, capability that you can come across sort of like, you know, light years across. I think uh, astronomer Brian Cox had said, said, sort of like, you know, and then they come here and they send out these tiny balloons in our atmosphere, which doesn't have any propulsion ability that gets shot down by US Air Force. So again, perhaps there is more of a mystery because there is no mystery. Meaning to say, I mean, why if the US government come out and say what it is, oftentimes it's based upon, they wanna hide the, they wanna keep the information to themselves and so on and so forth. Uh, that would be easier, but one thing that it is not, and I am saying as somebody who loves to believe in aliens, do think there is intelligent life out there, 
if these are aliens then like you know their artifacts i don't think we need to meet them <laughs> they where we are like you know they may not have much to offer us this would be such a disappointment if this is what aliens turn out to be bringing us. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local, burgers and fries, spiked milkshakes, and more on the corner in downtown Northampton and on the main drag in Keene. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. I chose community mental health to serve populations that are often underserved. Megan is a therapist at ServiceNet. One core value at ServiceNet is to continue to learn, to really strive for the most effective treatment. If you're looking for a strong sense of community and collaboration, come to ServiceNet. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. This is Salman Hamid's universe. We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. We had continued our conversation during the break, Salman, and Buzz had brought up the point that the original Chinese balloon that we do believe, and I don't think there's much question about it, was a surveillance balloon uh, that was authorized by the Chinese government and came into the United States uh, airspace and was shot down by the Air Force. That seems to be on a very different level, literally, uh, than these other three objects that were uh, between 20,000 and 40,000 feet, which uh, potentially do create an uh, impediment and a danger to commercial and private aircraft that fly at those altitudes. And I'm wondering, I know you're not going to tell us, and you probably won't speculate for us, what those objects are uh, or were. But what do you make of the 
altitudes where they were found, and the fact that there were three of them in a short period of time. Well, again, I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know what those are, uh, but uh, I, one of the senators, and I and I, I'm blanking on his name. He actually made a very reasonable statement, and he said that more likely, most likely, because again, uh, the intelligence community has started to switch on looking for these type of things with sensitive instruments that they were not doing that before. And so whenever you do these type of things, you start detecting things that you were not detecting before. So I think that is partly why suddenly we are starting to see these things. Now, part, and this may be as a result of those UFO hearings as well, but also, as I think Buzz was also pointing out, this is also the altitude where planes also go. So they can be a threat to, uh, to a plane. Um, and so I think shooting them now, again, there, there is a lot more dramatization associated with that, right? I mean, I can also, what does it mean, shot them down? I mean, that just seems like there was an aerial combat type situation. On the other hand, I mean, like, you know, it could be something that's, you're just clearing it out, right? Uh, similar types of things actually happen uh, even if you go a lot further up in the lower earth orbit where you have this debris that is there, which is also a threat and stuff like that, which doesn't come down uh, that easily. So I think, can they be a threat to uh, airplanes? Yes. I mean, I think, I think that certainly is the case. Can there be things that can be launched from the earth by humans uh, that can go up to that altitude? Yes, we know that those things can be there. So I think, again, uh, what people talk about, the outcomes razor, sort of like, you know, a simpler explanation. I mean, the likelihood that these were things that were potentially launched from the earth that went up, there are capabilities. You can actually buy those type of things from the earth. I think those are, we know that those exist. But there's something about this that I don't understand. So help me with this. At 20 to 40,000 feet, the United States Air Force was perfectly capable of sending an airplane to those altitudes and doing a flyby and taking some pictures. Why not do that before you blow it up? Uh, my guess would be that uh, that that is where I think a little bit of a hysteria, a little bit of the political situation comes in. I mean, I don't know, uh, again, but my guess is the way the whole debate has taken place. Uh, I mean, the fact that the, balloon, the Chinese balloon, which wasn't doing much sort of like, you know, going across and to let it go across to South Carolina and that already generated such a controversy in the Congress um, uh, that already shows sort of like, you know, that, okay, so if they've just taken a picture and if it wasn't clear or whatever, like, you know, they would have said, oh, they are just taking pictures, isn't like, you know, vacation spot or something like that instead of shoot it down first and ask questions later. I mean, to me, it just seems like that kind of thing. But again, that said, we don't know. This, this is just buzz. Just because we don't know doesn't mean. This is yes. Buzz, Salman, and Bill. In the couple minutes that we have left, I just wanted to ask you, all these people who for decades, for I don't know how long, have said, I've seen things in the sky, and people often don't believe them. I wonder for them, if I was one of them, if this would feel like a confirming kind of, see, even if it wasn't an alien ship, I saw things in the sky. What do you say about that? Absolutely. Well, I mean, to a certain degree, absolutely. I mean, people have been seeing things for a long time, but again, there is a distinction between 
people have been seeing things versus those are for, uh, like spacecrafts from an alien civilization. Uh, I mean, I think that distinction is crucial. So for example, I was just reading about it that in 1945, apparently in February, uh, USS New York, I think that was there. And uh, Japan had started launching balloons from there to drift on an airstream. And they thought that, you know, that they had seen one of these balloons and they thought that it might have sort of like, you know, nuclear weapons as well uh, coming in. And in fact, it was ordered to shot down. And that one of the people actually double checked it and it turned out it was Venus. And said, no, oh, that's planet Venus. And this is just to give you an idea. And again, it's in the records of sort of like, you know, this conversation that took place on that. It is when people look up, oftentimes there are things that can fool us, especially because things are up in the air and we have no clue in terms of how far away they are. Because on the ground, our eyes tell you in terms of parallax, if you have known landmarks, you can tell the distance. Now, the argument goes, but these are trained pilots, for example. They see things, yes, and they can be mistaken. Just like you can have Nobel laureates that are completely wrong. Just because you have a Nobel laureate and makes a claim, doesn't mean that it claim has to be trusted because it still has to have evidence behind it. And in the same way, oftentimes people talk about, but this is really credible people. Why would they be making it up? They're not. I don't think people make these claims up, but there are a lot of ways in which we can misinterpret evidence. Well, and Bill, so have people seen these things? Yeah. Bill, I uh, just heard in the introductory music that Dan played, uh, Salman Hamid was referred to as Mr. Spaceman. So let the rumors abound about where he comes from. <laughs> Salman, I got to give you the last word. We can't let the show end with that. <laughs> well, now that the word is out, you know. <laughs> no, I think, I, I, I would say, I mean, again, I mean, I, I don't, I, as Bill knows, because he was in my, he audited my class as well. I mean, I love uh, uh, aliens and I would love for like, you know, any kind of evidence to it, but the, usually the kind of evidence that is out there, it's not that people are lying. It's not that their experience is wrong. It's not that their experience is unfalse. Experience is true, but is, does that mean that there are aliens from another planet visiting? There is no evidence for that. And same goes with alien abductions as well. Everybody makes the right claims. And I think that as you pointed out in the course, Salman, and I think this is Carl Sagan's uh, statement, that for extraordinary claims and sightings or experienced aliens is an extraordinary claim. For extraordinary claims, there must be extraordinary evidence. And there really is not only extraordinary evidence, there's virtually no evidence. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, and, and again, just like in the, again, 2017 New York Times story when they had talked about artifacts. Now I was like, okay, now that changes. That's a game changer. If these things that have been shot down, if they do turn out, they can actually show, okay, now look, these, the, the, their makeup is nothing like the earth or their makeup is completely different. Sure, I mean, it's still possible. But at this point, the information that we have there is no reason to believe or even to speculate that there might be aliens. In fact, I would say that that's the least likely scenario because it just looks so mundane. 
And if they are aliens, they are so boring. Who cares? No. <laughs> but, but, I just think, but I just think that we just don't have sufficient evidence. We leave it there. Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid is with us every month. Thank you so much, Salman. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Several Massachusetts schools were locked down yesterday after being targeted with hoax threats. This happened just a day after a school in Westfield had received a hoax threat of their own. The FBI is referring to these situations as swatting incidents. In Chicopee, Great Barrington, Greenfield, and Springfield, schools went into lockdown. Chicopee police officer Travis Ordeon spoke with 22 News about the threat they received. It was a male party indicating that he was making his way to the high school. He made specific threats to the school, which resulted in all of our department responding there to investigate those threats. The threats were determined to be non-credible and are being investigated by the FBI. A Westfield man is facing multiple charges after he was arrested in Ware Monday after officers were called to check on a driver passed out in a parked vehicle. 42-year-old Jesse McClenahan was found in the McDonald's parking lot around 7.30 p.m. When officers approached the vehicle, they found McClenahan passed out and observed a bundle of suspected heroin and a needle on the man's lap. An additional 150 bags of suspected heroin was found inside the vehicle. The drugs were taken to a Massachusetts state lab for further tests. Massachusetts Athletics at UMass Amherst is receiving a $2 million gift to renovate their current training facility for the men's and women's cross-country and track and field team. The money was gifted from Dr. Jim and Ellen Hunt, graduates in 77. The athletic department has set June 30th to reach a $5 million goal raised through private philanthropy. Becoming mostly sunny today, windy out of the south and a high of 52 to 56. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low 36 to 42. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain developing after 4 o'clock, but warm, a high of 56 to 60. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El ex vicepresidente Mike Pence planea luchar contra una citación del fiscal especial que supervisa las investigaciones sobre los esfuerzos del expresidente Donald Trump y sus aliados para anular los resultados de las elecciones de 2020. Pence y sus abogados planean citar motivos constitucionales mientras se preparan para resistir los esfuerzos del fiscal especial Jack Smith para obligar a su testimonio ante un gran jurado. Argumentan que debido a que Pence estaba desempeñando su papel como presidente del Senado el 6 de enero de 2021, está protegido de verse obligado a abordar sus acciones bajo la cláusula constitucional de discurso o debate que protege a los miembros del Congreso. No está claro si los argumentos de Pence lograrán limitar o evitar por completo el testimonio del gran jurado, pero se espera que el Departamento de Justicia se oponga a esos esfuerzos y argumente que la cooperación del ex vicepresidente es esencial para una investigación centrada en las acciones de Trump. 
En otras informaciones, los tres objetos aéreos aún no identificados derribados por Estados Unidos la semana pasada probablemente tenían simplemente un propósito benigno, reconoció la Casa Blanca el martes, al establecer una distinción entre ellos y el enorme globo chino que atravesó anteriormente Estados Unidos con un objetivo sospechoso de vigilancia. Los nuevos detalles se produjeron cuando las acciones de la administración de Biden durante las últimas dos semanas enfrentaron un nuevo escrutinio en el Congreso. En conjunto, las acciones plantearon cuestiones políticas y de seguridad sobre si la administración de Biden reaccionó de forma exagerada después de enfrentar las críticas de los republicanos por reaccionar con demasiada lentitud ante el gran globo chino. Incluso a medida que surge más información sobre los tres objetos, quedan preguntas sobre qué eran, quién los envió y cómo Estados Unidos podría responder a los objetos aéreos no identificados en el futuro. Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this is our segment with our own Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Florence based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Larry Hott. This is Cool Films with Larry Hott. And Larry has been helping us understand and come to an appreciation of and make recommendations regarding films that are up for Oscars or should be up for Oscars this year. Larry Hott, what's your first film to discuss with us today, please? Bill, first I have to congratulate you on the most independent clauses in an opening statement I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> About a man who needs no introduction. <laughs> so we are in the Academy Awards season, deep into it. And there are five nominees for Best Feature Documentary and five for Best Short. And I thought I'd talk about a few of those. Uh, we've spoken about how this happens. There is a documentary committee on the Academy Awards, about 200, 300 people. And we look at a couple of hundred films and score them and do ranked choice voting and boils it down to five nominees for the long form and five for the short, short being 39 minutes and under. So I want to talk about one of the long form films we haven't spoken about, but it did show at the Amherst Cinema. It's called Fire of Love. It's a National Geographic love story. Uh, it's something unusual for them. You know, they're known for their science films. But this is a film that, boy, let me tell you, it, it's about volcanoes and a couple that loves them. There is nothing, there is no better metaphor for love than a volcano. I, I really don't think I have to explain this to everybody. I think you have to explain yeah, it to me. Oh, okay. Let's just please use, don't, the, let's please, use the word uh, pent, pent up aching oh. <laughs> explosion, eruption, um, people who love these mountains and explore them and try to teach about them. But the, the story is of a couple named Maurice and Katja Kraft, a French couple. And they're both scientists and they fall in love and they fall in love because they both want to explore volcanoes around the world and get as close to them as possible and film them. We have a, a clip from the film. We'll give you a sense of how sensual this film is. This is Katya, and this is Maurice. <laughs> Tomorrow will be their last day. They will leave behind hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of photos, and a million questions. 
alone, they could only dream of volcanoes. Together, they can reach them. They meet on a blind date at a cafe. From here on out, life will only be volcanoes, volcanoes, volcanoes. C'est très dur de volcanologues qui vivent ensemble parce que c'est très volcanique. Donc franchement, ça fait des éruptions très souvent. Volcanoes, volcanoes, volcanoes. That narration is Miranda July. That soft-spoken, sexy narration. While you're looking at the volcanoes erupting and that red lava flowing down the mountain. Well, okay, <laughs> hot, hot, yeah. you're done. You're done. You're done. <laughs> calm, calm down, everybody. Okay. I have a question. Oh yes, go what's go the, ahead. What's what's the story? I mean, I assume that scientists have been filming and exploring volcanoes for centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, what's what's new here? What's new here is that this couple decides that they are going to promote themselves and their scientific research with films and books and appearances where they make themselves as weird and funny as possible. So when you watch this film, you see them dressing up in alien-type costumes, prancing around on the edge of the volcanoes, teasing and tickling each other with whatever objects they have, shovels and spikes and whatever, and then coming back into the towns where they live and spending months and years even writing about it, getting grants about it, but making sure that they are in the media all the time so they can get money for their research. But they have a goal, and their goal is to save lives because there are been what they call these they have the good the good eruptions and the bad eruptions and the bad ones are the ones um, that kill people that come without very little notice and overwhelm mostly islands but other places parts of the world and destroy towns and villages and thousands of people die and they're trying to figure out how can we know when a volcano is about to erupt uh, one of the most poignant films, uh, scenes in the film is when they're at the Mount St. Helens eruption. If you remember that 1980, uh, and there was lots of warnings that it was about to happen, uh, there were scientists coming in from all over the world, and they come as well. And one of their best friends is about 20 miles away from the site of the blast and dies because they underestimated how far the blast would go. Well, at the beginning of this film, and you heard it in the narration for the trailer, you know that they're going to die. There's nothing better than a film that sets up the tension of how somebody is going to die. And then you have a love story, building and building and building. So just like the volcano, you don't know when it's going to erupt. So let me ask you this, Larry. Yeah. Uh, this is Buzz. Um, if You say National Geographic. We don't think of them as making films about love stories. So if I'm a young... Um, uh, aspiring filmmaker, and I have a screenplay that I've written. Um, you just submit it to National Geographic. Who actually makes the film? Well, that's a great. That's a great question because films get made in so many different ways. So this is a National Geographic Geographic production. But what I suspect happened from reading the credits is that a filmmaker was working on this film, looking for funding, and approaches National Geographic and says, look, I have this story. Look how far I've come. I'm showing you a rough cut of it. And National Geographic... It stars says, volcanoes. It's right, volcanoes. Everybody wants something sexy, like a volcano, earthquakes. You know, there's something dramatic just in that uh, story there. And when you couple it with a love story of, of 
naturally charismatic people who have created that aura of charisma around them in order for them to get the money to save lives. You've got all these things going for you as a filmmaker. So National Geographic picks up the film, buys it, um, sponsors it or licenses, whatever. That's how films generally get made. Uh, net, you know, you think of Netflix producing films. A lot, um, almost all the Netflix films are somebody pitching Netflix and Netflix taking it on. Series that come out of other countries, they're already in production, they're looking for somebody to fund it, Netflix takes it, takes it on. Occasionally somebody like Netflix or Amazon Prime will say, we want to produce our own thing and they'll find the producer, but mostly it's coming from the outside. And Hollywood has atomized that way. So producers and writers are always pitching their projects and then that studio takes it on. National Geographic has become a studio. But here they have a real winner. Uh, I so so uh, go ahead, Bill. Larry. Let me. I, I want you to say the name of the film again, but I also want you to get to the narrative arc uh, that the story is telling, which is a search. It's a scientific search. It's a love story. I got that. Right. But it's well, also the, a search for something that's going to save human lives. And the question becomes, and I don't know if you want to give it away or not, but the question becomes, did they achieve their goal? Well, let me go back to your question about what the title of the film is. It's not only the title, it's how you pronounce it. I mean, the title is simply Fire of Love, but you can't say it that way. You have to say Fire of Love. A lot of air just escaped from Larry yeah. as he said that. I just, I, this is something I learned as a filmmaker. You really have to pronounce the title correctly. <laughs> so, yes, they contribute scientifically to un an understanding of what's happening, what understanding of the, the, the tremors and the seismic activity that's happening, uh, and, the, and the direction of the flow. And the irony, of course, is uh, how they get killed, <laughs> which is miscalculating <laughs> all the things that they've been studying. Um, and the filmmakers, of course, hold back and hold back and hold back on that in, until the end. But they are lovable people. They're just delightful and funny and happy. Uh, so, of course, the, the tragedy of their death is all the more so because you've grown to like them and appreciate their work. So there is a definite dramatic arc in the film as they're going around the world, as friends of theirs are dying, as thousands of people die in these eruptions without enough warning, and they're figuring it out how to save people, and then, then they themselves die in, uh, in a, a volcanic lava flow that overtakes them. Uh, I highly recommend this, this movie. It, you know, frequently we compare documentaries to feature films and say, you know, once in a while, this, this documentary is better than any feature. Well, this is one of those. This is one of those where um, this love story is fantastic. The tension is there. The drama is there. It has an arc. It has a beginning, a middle, and <laughs> it has a, as a climax and a denouement. All the things you want in, in a feature film. And so, a breathy title. And a breathy, and a, and a breathy reviewer who can say, fire of love. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a break so that he can get his air back, so he can, you know, restore himself, and then we're back with more cool films with Larry Hot right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. 
the creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. I'm going down to the corner store. It sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with Larry Hott, one of our favorite segments, Cool Films with Larry Hott. Larry has been helping us understand, oh, not too many independent or not independent clauses. They're phrases, actually. Anyway, whatever they are, Larry Hott is independent filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, award-winning, Emmy award-winning filmmaker based in Florence, and he's helping us. Well, get prepared for the Oscars. Bill, you forgot you forgot can... uh, you forgot Bon Vivant and Bo Brummel, but <laughs> next time you can include those. Okay, Larry. Next film we should be considering as we get prepared for the Oscars. So I mentioned that there were five films nominated for best documentary and five for best short documentary, thirty-five minutes and under. And one of the best of those is Stranger at the Gate, uh, which is a film about a man named Richard McKinney who was an Afghanistan war veteran who does something very, very unusual. And I think if we hear the trailer, you'll get a sense of why this film is so important. When I first saw him, I remember saying, there's something not right with this guy. It was a little scary. He seemed to be like a redneck. He was walking kind of fast, his head was kind of down, facing back and forth. 
I was hoping for at least 200 or more. Dead, injured. You know, he thought he was doing the right thing. He was at war with Muslims in his mind. When I tell people this story, they tell me that they don't believe me. My dad calls my mom the Mother Teresa of the Muslim community, and it's definitely true. I invited him over for dinner. I couldn't help it except to make him feel from my heart that he is welcome. That last line on the trailer, make him feel in my heart that he is welcome. Well, that's sort of the crux of this film. Richard McKinney has hate in his heart. He lives in Muncie, Indiana. He's an Afghanistan war veteran, and he hates Muslims. There just happens to be a large mosque in town, and he starts to plot to kill as many people as possible. He says in the trailer he hopes to kill 200 people. This is a doc documentary by Josh Seftel, who lives here in New England, who I've known for a number of years, made wonderful films. And this one, uh, it really grabbed me because it's sort of the counter-narrative that we usually hear about a terrorist, particularly a terrorist in America. The crux of the film is that when he goes to scout this mosque and comes in the door, the people there welcome him, start talking with him, invite him over for dinner. All the while, he's trying to figure out how can he murder them, and they're trying to figure out how can we make friends with this person. They don't know, of course, that he wants to kill them. The story is told through his wife, who now his ex-wife, and his daughter, a teenage daughter, who believe in their father, but couldn't not believe he'd be, he'd be the kind of person to do this. And as he becomes friends with the people in the mosque, he starts to change his mind. And this is sort of a way of telling a story. It's almost a fantasy of what we'd like to see happen. It's hard to believe it because we think, these people are so hardened, terrorists of, of any breed, that they can't be turned back. But this is, a, this is a hopeful story, a happy story, a story with a, a good ending. And you don't usually get that in stories of terrorism. How did he get this story? That he's someone who's planning to commit a mass murder, allows himself to be filmed as he goes about planning it? Explain that. No, it's, 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 told, it's told after the fact. Um, the filmmaker discovers this, the story Actually, he made a short, like a five-minute film about it and then decided that he wanted to get into it more deeply. Uh, so there was, a, I think, a newspaper article about it, and he started to look into it. And as many filmmakers do, they're looking to see, oh, can I expand this story? Is there, is there more than meets the eye in what I've just read about? Um, and the interview with him, with the man, uh, Richard McKinney, is revealing um, because he has such insight. Um, but it's more than that. It's really the, interview, the, the interviews that are most interesting are the, are the members of the mosque. Uh, they are the ones who, who forgive him right from the get-go. As soon as they learn about what, what you know, they, they don't know, of course, when they're befriending him and talking to him, what his intentions are. But later when the story comes out, they take him in even more strongly. Uh, so, you know, it makes you wonder, you know, how can we have, make this happen elsewhere? You know, what, what's the secret sauce that these people in this community had that made this work. Uh, the film is Str Stranger at the Gate. Um, most of the films I talk about uh, are, are easy to find. You just, just Google them. Uh, sometimes you have to pay $2.99 to see them. Uh, sometimes you have to subscribe to a, a site. Uh, 
you know, those poor people at HBO, they have to make money. So <laughs> give, give them a little something, watch the film, and then unsubscribe. <laughs> That's my solution. <laughs> I want to talk about one other film, a film that we, uh, that I reviewed on this. In the less than a minute that we show. have left. Yeah, I just want to mention uh, how, do, how Do You Measure a Year, uh, it, which is a half-hour film uh, made by Jay Rosenblatt, where he does what a lot of filmmakers will say they want to do, he interviews his daughter, Ella, every year from the time she's two until the time she's 18 and makes a beautiful film where you see a child go through every possible stage all within about 15, 20, 30 seconds each. And the name of that film again? How Do You Measure a Year? How so just look for that one. It's a great film. Okay. We leave it there. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hott. And for those of you listening in the morning, coming up right after the news break, another full hour of our show, including investigative reporter Dusty Christensen on his investigation into the Holyoke Police Department, the revelations and the response. For those listening in late afternoon, thank you for being part of Talk the Talk and for appreciating that we also need to walk the walk. I'm Bill Newman, and for myself, Buzz Eisenberg, Dan Torres, and our entire WHMP, thank you again, and please join us again tomorrow for another edition of Talk the Talk. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. is CBS News on the Hour, your home for original reporting. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. A white supremacist is in court in Buffalo, New York, waiting to be sentenced to life in prison for killing 10 people at a top supermarket in a mostly black neighborhood. First, Peyton Gendron hears from family members of some of the victims. Mark Talley's mother, Geraldine, was among them. He's chosen not to speak at this morning's hearing. We have an 18-year-old um, white man who's being looked at as he's a 12-year-old, you know, little scared child. The gunman, who's 19 now, wore bulletproof armor and a helmet with a live streaming camera when he opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle last May. There's a new racial controversy in the Deep South. CBS's Jim Crisula has the details. 80% of the white residents in Mississippi's majority black capital city of Jackson would be included in a proposed new judicial district with hand-picked prosecutors and judges. Critics say that would lead to further allegations of deliberate racial prejudice in a Republican-backed legislative proposal. Investigators still trying to pin down a motive in Monday's shooting that killed three students at Michigan State University. The suspect shot himself to death. Correspondent Roxana Subiri is in East Lansing. According to law enforcement, the gunman had no ties to MSU, but he did have a criminal record and was sentenced to a year of probation in 2019 for illegally carrying a concealed weapon without a proper permit. A vigil will be held for the victim 
victims on campus today. The Chinese spy balloon taken out by U.S. fighter jets off South Carolina shouldn't have come as any surprise. CBS is at O'Keefe. U.S. intelligence had actually been tracking the balloon when it took off from Hainan Island off of the South China coast last month. At that point, it then started drifting towards Guam and Hawaii before making a northward turn up to Alaska. Experts believe those three mystery objects shot down over the weekend were harmless research balloons. Retail sales are on the rebound. After dropping over the holidays, they jumped 3% in January, despite the Fed's efforts to tamp down inflation. Leading the way, spending at furniture and clothing stores, restaurants, and at car dealerships. It's the biggest jump in sales since March of 2021. The White House says Tesla will open parts of its supercharger network to other EVs. WWJ's Jeff Gilbert. That vast network had been a competitive advantage for Tesla. Tesla gives it up for unspecified government funding. Still to be worked out is how vehicles with different charging connections will hook up to Tesla's system. Hundreds of thousands of Chiefs fans are ready to paint the town red today. A parade for this year's Super Bowl champions is set to roll down Kansas City's Grand Boulevard at noon. Most schools are closed for the day. The Dow is down 181 points. S&P off 26. This is CBS News. At Staples, you can count on every project being print perfect, guaranteed. I need presentations and brochures printed, and they have to be perfect. Your bounded presentations, brochures with the finest folds, and more will be done right every time. That's our print big promise. Now at Staples, get $10 off your document printing and marketing materials order of $50 or more, plus 20% back by a store bonus. Try Staples and see the difference. Ends 225. Rewards members only. Bonus must be redeemed in store. See staples.com slash stores slash print big for details. God, I'm so stressed. It's a brand new year and our business is busier than ever. Uma. What is that? Meditation? I'm recommending the Uma cloud phone system with auto attendant and more than 35 features. Uma? Yep. Switching to Uma is a cinch. Starts at $19.95 per month per user, plus taxes and fees. Uma. Now you're feeling it. Visit Uma.com. That's O-O-M-A dot com. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Several Massachusetts schools were locked down yesterday after being targeted with hoax threats. This happened just a day after a school in Westfield had received a hoax threat of their own. The FBI is referring to these situations as swatting incidents. In Chicopee, Great Barrington, Greenfield, and Springfield, schools went into lockdown. Chicopee Police Officer Travis Ordeon spoke with 22 News about the threat they received. It was a mail party indicating that he was making his way to the high school. He made specific threats to the school, which resulted in all of our department responding there to investigate those threats. The threats were determined to be non-credible and are being investigated by the FBI. A Westfield man is facing multiple charges after he was arrested in Ware Monday after officers were called to check on a driver passed out in a parked vehicle. 42-year-old Jesse McClenahan was found in the McDonald's parking lot around 7.30 p.m. When officers approached the vehicle, they found McClenahan passed out and observed a bundle of suspected heroin and a needle on the man's lap. An additional 150 bags of suspected heroin was found inside the vehicle. The drugs were taken to a Massachusetts state lab for further tests. Massachusetts Athletics at UMass Amherst is receiving a $2 million gift to renovate their current training facility for the men's and women's cross-country and track and field teams. The money was gifted from Dr. Jim and Ellen Hunt, graduates in 77. The athletic department has set June 30th to reach a $5 million goal raised through private philanthropy. 
Becoming mostly sunny today, windy out of the south and a high of 52 to 56. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low 36 to 42. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain developing after 4 o'clock, but warm, a high of 56 to 60. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And thank you for joining us. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. Um, Bill, there has been a lot of talk about local police departments, uh, police departments across the country. Um, and I guess if we had to have one headline, it would be accountability for the police and police conduct, the way that they organize their uh, departments. Um, it's been, Greenfield has been very much in the news since last spring when a verdict was handed down that uh, uh, the jury found that, in fact, um, the uh, police department and the chief of police in Greenfield had discriminated against uh, a minority um, police officer who didn't get promoted, and the jury found that he didn't get promoted because of his race and found that there was discrimination in the prejudgment and post-judgment interest, along with the verdict, now bring it over a million dollars. Uh, we have heard it's being appealed by the insurance company that has to pay the ticket. Um, since then, a lot has happened. Um, and the city council in Greenfield um, uh, decided last uh, summer, an early summer, to uh, lower the budget of the police department from roughly $3.5 million, lower it by roughly $425,000. Greenfield's police department then came back with uh, after a seven or eight month delay that they were going to uh, not be able to police during from 11 o'clock to seven in the morning. Um, they left it to the state police to do that. The state police then said, oh no, we're not going to do it under routine circumstances. In fact, we're only going to do it if it's a matter of life and death. Otherwise, we will not be policing the streets of Greenfield. And since then, the mayor and the city council have gotten together along with the police department and uh, with us today to talk about what's happening most recently is City Councilor Marianne Bullock. Um, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, so, can you give us an update of what's been happening most recently with respect to what's going to happen between the hours of 11 o'clock and 7 o'clock with respect to uh, cruise patrol and other patrol by the police department in Greenfield? Yeah, we haven't had an update since we had our last uh, council meeting in January, and then we had an emergency meeting the following Wednesday, a week later. We were updated there um, that there has been an agreement in place with the union, with the police union um, and the city that we will have coverage starting, I believe it's March 1st, um, from uh, 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. by Greenfield Police. Um, and then the, uh, then they, then the mass state police will take over. Um, so we haven't actually, you know, I'm not sure that everything got signed off on that. We had like an initial, uh, MOU that was in front of us. Memorandum in, of understanding. Uh, yeah. In that Wednesday meeting. Um, but we haven't had an update since then. I'm in our council meetings tonight, so I'm sure we'll receive an update from the mayor this evening. So, Councillor Bullock, uh, uh, there was talk, and I read that, in fact, there was going to be a police commission 
appointed. Um, and what's the status of that? And what is it intended to be and what's the status of it now? Yeah, so we have a public safety commission. We've had a public safety commission for many years. It's a part of our charter. Um, so throughout this process, there's been a public safety commission in, in place. Um, you know, the public safety commission really is supposed to cover um, the the police department, the fire department. It's more of a broad public safety commission and not just a police commission. Um, Historically, it has mostly focused on the police in Greenfield. And so um, that Public Safety Commission, it's, it's largely been overlooked for many years. It's consisted of five members. Um, here and there, things have popped up and it's become, uh, you know, people will attend those meetings or it'll become um, the topic of conversation for a little while in the media. But after um, the verdict and some of the ways that the city has handled the, the uh, you know, what has happened since the verdict, that Public Safety Commission has seen a number of turnovers. It's a five-member body. Um, and I believe up until very recently, just this month at our appointments and ordinances meeting, we had two uh, two recommendations and the month before we had two recommendations. So it was down to one, one commissioner. I thought, um, that I heard that the mayor, Roxanne Wiedergartner had, a had intended to appoint someone that the city council did not want to approve. Is that true? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the city council, uh, many of us, have asked for some months now for for some measures, any measures of accountability, really. Um, you know, la at last month's meeting, um, when the emergency meeting happened after we found out that there would be no night force in Greenfield, I presented to the mayor a list of priorities that could be addressed um, to start the process of looking at um, policing in Greenfield. And these are sort of like basic many many departments across the country did these things starting in 2020 um, when a lot of when a lot of police looked um, looked for some change so councilor marion bulk i, I want to go back and rewind this uh, film just a bit um, after the verdict the greenfield council slashed the police budget uh, which had a number of ramifications, resulting uh, uh, in, among other things, this announcement by the mayor that there was not going to be coverage from 12 or 11 o'clock at night until 7 in the morning. That's now been modified. First question, you say that there has now been an agreement. There are four hours that will be covered by the Greenfield Police and three hours by the state police, but the state police coverage is only in life and death situations. Do I understand that correctly or has that been modified too? My understanding is that that is the current agreement, is that oh. there's still a few hours of coverage where the state police are um, are the only response or mutual aid response uh, is the only response that we have in Greenfield. And I also understand it that the reason that those hours were chosen is because those are the hours that we have the least amount of calls in Greenfield. Okay, so three hours without uh, coverage on the streets or by a cruiser uh, during the uh, night in Greenfield. Let me ask you this. That situation 
came about in part or a significant part because of the budget cut. And you can debate and we can debate and should debate uh, why there is the, the uh, response was the way it was. But I'm wondering whether you as a counselor and whether the Greenfield City Council has any regrets about cutting the budget when and how it did. I, you know, I definitely can't speak for my fellow counselors. We're not a monolith, as I think many, you know, no city council is a monolith. There's quite divergent views um, and, and ways we vote with each across each other. Um, do I regret, do I personally regret my vote? I don't. Um, I'm going to be honest that I have followed the Greenfield Police budget for many years. Um, you know, before I was a counselor, I was sending um, letters to my counselors saying we need to look at this budget department budget. It's out of line um, in comparison to other police departments in our area. If you look per capita, how much like East Hampton, North Adams, Pittsfield, uh, basically any other uh, comparable city around us spends on policing, we spend much more. Um, and we're not necessarily safer if you look at the crime statistics. And so going into the city council meeting in May, also there's been this like we slashed the police budget, right? They asked for an increase. We denied that increase. And then they they did receive a 6% reduction. Um, and so we had a night force in 2020 when they had a lesser budget than they currently have in 2022. We had a night, night force in 2021, um, in 2019 and 2018, we've had a, men, a night force for many years. Um, so I personally, I don't regret it. I think that as a counselor, I feel like we've been sort of put in a hard place where the public is demanding accountability by the police department, from, from the police department and from the city um it's not really our job like as a, a city council right like we mostly our job is is budgets we, we we deal with financial orders um but we've been put in this place where we have to we have to demand some accountability and that's the only mechanism that we have um and i would like to say that if moving forward as we're moving into budget season now if we were seeing that there was some concrete steps moving forward from the city towards some of these accountability measures, looking at some of the issues that the police department has had, maybe I would be somewhat regretful because it's really been terrible for our community. Um, people have been worried, people have been scared. Um, other people have called for bigger cuts, you know, it's real, it's really divergent, but uh, it's created a divide within our community, and I'm regretful of that, uh, but I'm not regretful of the fact that something ha has to be done at this point. And that, that's what I would like to talk about, Councillor Bullock, that if we just sort of look at a wider lens, look through a wider lens, and by way of disclosure, um, Roxanne Wiedergartner and I have been friends for about 40 years. She appears on my show uh, and what was Bill's show. She's uh, going to be a regular on Talk to Talk as well um having said that there is there's there's real tension when you say it's divided the community there seems to be real tension between the city council and mayor roxanne wiedergartner is uh is that perception accurate i think as i said earlier it's um it varies <laughs> between counselors and 
And it's for me anyways, like it's not personal, right? Like I, I also like Roxanne um, as a person, we see each other on the street, we say hi, we talk about, you know, the winter carnival, the things that are going on. Um, you know, I admire her as a woman in a leadership position. This is for me, this is actually like a matter of policy and accountability. And she happens to be the person in the executive office who needs to uh, implement those measures. And but so, you've been quite open uh, about the fact that you don't think she, she has handled this very well in her that her um, uh, statement that the police chief will be exonerated, which she said in, in the wake of the verdict and a number of other things that she's done to apparently um, support her police, you've thought is at the expense of transparency and at the, at the expense of um, honesty. That's, that's what I have understood is your position. Is that right? Yeah, there there is um a real there is a real piece for me about when a jury in western massachusetts that's you know um a majority white in hampshire county uh in a discrimination case which are very hard uh very hard to prove um comes down with uh, a guilty finding not only against our chief of police but against our city and it was before roxanne was mayor one absolutely um i think there needs to be some curiosity into why that happens before there is a bold statement that goes out in 100 percent support of of the chief of police and and some um you know, some data and research to to back up why you're supporting this chief of police 100% in the face of of a guilty finding. I'm I'm confused about the cause and effect here. I understand fully understand your reaction to the verdict. I, I don't question that in the least. What I don't really understand fully is why the reaction to a discrimination in hiring and promotion verdict, a substantial verdict, uh, leads to the uh, action that the police budget should be cut. I, I don't understand that cause and effect, really, and I'd appreciate if you could explain it to me. Yeah, I can explain to some degree from what I heard on council floor, because as I said, my reasoning for for the police cuts were were a little bit different um, than some of my other my fellow counselors. But um, what many counselors said on council floor during those budget debates in, in May were um, that there needed to be uh, some action taken and the city wasn't willing to take it. Many people were calling for the resignation of the, the chief of police, Chief Haig, um, or for the mayor to, to fire him or terminate him. Um, none, none of that happened. And then also we, it was, pretty much in quick succession that we found out that um, the, the city was going to appeal this case. So that was sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back was that when people, when the public, when the city council found out that there was an appeal that was going to be go through and we were sort of, the city was going to be on the hook for potentially more money, the, the money that's owed to Officer Buchanan is gaining interest every single day. Um, and that we were going to have to go through another trial or, or a, you know, another longer, uh, a, a longer proceedings of this case, we 
there was many counselors who felt that that was unacceptable and that the mayor should have um, should have said, you know, we're not going to appeal or, or fight the insurance company. Um, I can't remember exactly chronologically if we had our executive session um, with the, with uh, about this prior to the council meeting, but I think it was post council meeting. I think it was like a week or so after the council meeting. So there was many counselors who just felt that this was the only only thing we could do uh, to take action and um, that that was the action they would take because it was financial. This is Dan. I, I had a quick question for you um, just on what you were talking about, the appeal. Uh, what I've understood from the mayor of Greenfield is it wasn't really her choice um, that it was up to the insurance company that Greenfield pays, and they're the ones who made the determination about the appeal. And I just wanted to know if you could address that. Yeah, that's my understanding, too. That's been the the line that we've received from, from the executive office is that they have to um, do the appeal. I don't know. I haven't talked directly with the insurance company. I don't know if that is confirmed. We're talking to uh, Greenfield City Councilor Marion Bullock. We're going to continue our conversation after the break, and I'm going to ask you, uh, Marion Bullock, about um, your emails. I understand that there's been public record requests from police officers specifically, um, and I'm going to ask you about that right after these messages. Stay with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Part of what I love about being a therapist in community mental health is really getting to know people who are from really different backgrounds, including serving people who are the most vulnerable. Dan is a therapist at ServiceNet. There's a culture of thinking more deeply about the work we're doing. And for me, when I do that, that feels really good. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries, spiked milkshakes and more. On the corner in downtown Northampton and on the main drag in Keene. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back. This is Buzz Eisenberg with Greenfield City Council person, 
Marion. Marion Bullock is, uh, by the way, is it councilwoman? Is it councilperson? What are you? Uh, you can call me councilwoman. Okay, councilwoman. Or um, councilperson. Neither, neither or counselor. Are, uh, Maybe either. counselor is the best way to go in this regard. Um, counselor so, works too. Yeah, so I've heard that there have been public record requests for uh, certain emails of yours. Could you give us a little bit of background about what you think precipitated that and what the status of it is right now? Yeah, so, well, based on one of the requests, um, I'll just say I, I, I found out about this from um, the clerk who emailed me uh, or called me and said- The city clerk of Greenfield. The city clerk, the of, city Greenfield. clerk of Greenfield. She's lovely. Um, she called me and said, there's been a record request for some of your emails. Here's how we go about this. I just wanted to let you know. Um, so at first I sort of was like, yep, my emails are public record. Um, this is the way it goes. I've been here a year. It hasn't happened yet. Um, okay. Uh, and then I read the, I went home and I read the request online. Um, there was a number of requests that were put in. A few of them were closed. Um, I can't. What does that mean? They're closed. What do you mean? They're it closed? means that the person withdrew, um, the request was withdrawn per the requester. So the first request that I saw when I, um, when I logged in was a request that was made, uh, for any written communications, including emails to and from all city councilors for all of the police department between January 1st and January 31st, except for the chief of police and the deputy uh, chief. So um, every any email between any police officer and any city councilor that happened in the month of January was the first request I saw. So I just assumed this is the police looking for anything between any counselor. And did I that understand was, that the request originally was for a 10 year period? Emails over a 10 year period? Nope, that's a different request. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so then there was another request that was put in that was that was that they would like all the emails from um all city counselors between the police department including the emails where I referenced on your show that over the past 48 hours, I had received emails from other police departments or families of police members um, in relation to the budget and staffing cuts. That was also closed there by the requester. And then there was another one that was put in that I have not yet been able to read, but I did have to supply my emails for that was specific to me um, and specific to my emails with police that mentioned the word police within that one month period. Okay. Let me just when interrupt I, and just, let me just throw it to Bill Newman, who knows a little bit about public okay. records. Bill. Hey, Councillor Bullock, a public records request is itself a public record. So when, if we don't know yet, will we know who made the request and the request was made to whom it wasn't to you specifically. I take it it was made to the city of Greenfield for this large uh, uh, cache of documents or electronic yeah. documents. So tell us about that. Who, when do we know or when will we know who made the request? When will the response go out? Fill us in on those details, if you could, please. 
Yeah, so both of the requests that I just mentioned were made by um, by Deputy Gordon, Deputy Chief Gordon, um, and from the police, the Greenfield Police Department, and they were made to um, the City Council. So Kathy Scott, our clerk, is the one who handles those requests for the City Council, um, and so those two requests were closed because they were withdrawn my understanding is that there's a third request that hasn't been published yet it i can only see what's on next request are like the way that we um the database how we handle it um i can't see that open request yet um but my understanding is that it was the same it was pulled by by deputy chief gordon um and that it was slimmed down to only include me the words policing uh, within that time frame, do you believe? I'll just say that I also, no, I ahead, also did. Yeah, I did a. You know, this got me thinking. What other records requests have been pulled in relation to me? Um, so I did a search on next request for my name, for my home address, for some other keywords that would have brought some things up. Um, and I also found that. Um, a police officer, while he was an officer in Greenfield, requested any police response in the last, I believe, I believe it was five years, I looked at the record again this morning, um, in the last five years to my residence, uh, as well as to four, three other counselors, um, relatively vocal on the police budget um, cuts in May, and that request was made a week after the budget cuts happened um, last May. And they were provided more than five years of response calls. They were provided about like 15 years of response calls. So I guess the, the elephant in the room, let me just ask the question. Um, do you believe that this was in re these requests were in reprisal for the position that you took, the formal position you took as a counselor with respect to the Greenfield Police Department, its budget, et cetera? Do you think it was done in reprisal? Um, absolutely. I think the request that was made in May where they were looking for any police responses to my address was done in reprisal. Um, this request regarding my emails, you know, I have two thoughts on them. One is that potentially they thought I was lying and they wanted to see if police had actually been or family members had actually been corresponding with me. Um, or that they were looking to, uh, you know, do some kind of punitive action against police officers in our department that had spoken out potentially um, negatively or critically of our police department. And they wanted to know who those people were because there was a request for literally every police officer's email with counselors. Um, I don't want to assume it's about me because I don't want it to be about me, <laughs> but it's hard to not feel like this is in reprisal for being somewhat critical of what's happening um, within our department. Well, we only have a minute left, so I wanted to, what do you, where would you like to leave listeners, what, Greenfield listeners and other people who care about Greenfield and care about police accountability? What's the last message you'd like to leave us with? 
I think the last message I want to leave us with is that we want some of these measures to move forward. We want a public safety commission overhaul. We want a written complaints review process that's clear and public. We want um, a coordination between the, the domestic violence task force and public safety commission for coordinated reviews, background checks, investigations into violence of but, uh, perpetrated by police officers. There's a whole list. <laughs> of things that we that the that this the community has come together for over the summer there was a task force that was proposed um, many of those things were brought up uh, we you know we want some kind of feasibility study on a non um, on a civilian response uh, team that could be put into place in greenfield uh, we need to look at the prevalence of black people that are pulled over at a disproportionate level in our, within our city that has been uh, clear for a number of years, but there's been no uh, steps forward to remediate that situation. Um, you know, I'd like to see ARPA funding that's put towards things like housing and some of these root causes of crime and violence that we have. You know, I just read Amherst put $750,000 in ARPA towards supportive housing. We're putting ARPA funding towards the police. Um, so there, I have a whole bullet point. Maybe next time we could talk about all those things that are sort of positive and looking towards building our community up. But that's what I really would like to focus on moving forward, especially as we move forward into budget season. And we really appreciate you joining us today. There certainly will be a next time when we invite you on the show. It's very helpful to learn about what's happening in our beloved city of Greenfield and police accountability generally. We are going to take a break. When we come back, speaking of police accountability, independent investigative reporter, my mouth isn't quite working, Dusty Christensen is going to join us on the uh, important um, piece that he did for NEPM um, and the revelations about the Holyoke Police Department and the mayor's response to it. We'll be right back with Dusty Christensen right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Several Massachusetts schools were locked down yesterday after being targeted with hoax threats. This happened just a day after a school in Westfield had received a hoax threat of their own. The FBI is referring to these situations as swatting incidents. In Chicopee, Great Barrington, Greenfield, and Springfield, schools went into lockdown. Chicopee Police Officer Travis Ordeon spoke with 22 News about the threat they received. It was a male party indicating that he was making his way to the high school. He made specific threats to the school, which resulted in all of our department responding there to investigate those threats. The threats were determined to be non-credible and are being investigated by the FBI. A Westfield man is facing multiple charges after he was arrested in Ware Monday after officers were called to check on a driver passed out in a parked vehicle. 42-year-old Jesse McClenahan was found in the McDonald's parking lot around 7.30 p.m. When officers approached the vehicle, they found McClenahan passed out and observed a bundle of suspected heroin and a needle on the man's lap. An additional 150 bags of suspected heroin was found inside the vehicle. The drugs were taken to a Massachusetts state lab for further tests. Massachusetts Athletics at UMass Amherst is receiving a $2 million gift to renovate their current training facility for the men's and women's cross-country and track and field team. The money was gifted from Dr. Jim and Ellen Hunt, graduates in 77. The athletic department has set June 30th to reach a $5 million goal raised through private philanthropy. 
Becoming mostly sunny today, windy out of the south and a high of 52 to 56. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low 36 to 42. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain developing after 4 o'clock, but warm, a high of 56 to 60. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me Saturdays at 9.30 a.m. as we shine a light on justice-involved underdogs, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a path back into society and prove that failure isn't final. Unlock your future. Rewrite your story. Tune into The Hustler Files right here on WHMP. Picture perfect days here in the Valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the Valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at noon, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are continuing uh, our conversation today uh, about accountability on part of police and the way cities respond to complaints about police departments uh, in this region. With us right now is Dusty Christensen, the independent investigative reporter who has written about everything from police misconduct to changing diapers you're famously (laughs) (laughs) you wrote about and as a local reporter here in western massachusetts you for the gazette um for the boston globe you've covered uh these sorts of things at berkshire eagle the greenfield recorder the valley advocate you did a story for new england public media that was published on february 7th um about this new massachusetts law uh and that that requires a response when people make complaints about police conduct. Um, you wrote about the civilian complaints that have been uh, made about and to the Holyoke Police Department and what the response of the department was and most recently the city was. So can you tell us a little bit, set the stage for us about what the story's about? Sure, yeah. As, as you mentioned, in uh, at the end of 2020, after nationwide Black Lives Matter protests, Uh, The Massachusetts state legislature passed a sweeping police reform bill that, among a whole bunch of other things, uh, 
opened up police misconduct investigations to greater scrutiny under the state's public records law. As reporters, we love the public records law. It's a chance for us to get our hands on documents and things that, that are in the interest of the public and for us to report on. So shortly after that bill was passed, I filed a public records request um, with another reporter at that time, Greta Yoakam, um, for these kinds of complaints uh, and investigations from uh, several different uh, local police departments, Northampton and Amherst, we published stories on on those in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Um, it uh, Holyoke took the longest to send us their records. They did have a lot of them, in, in fairness to them. Um, uh, but it took 18 months for them to send us on a rolling basis every single one of those records. Uh, I should note that there's still uh, a whole host of, of, of investigations they have not sent us. What they have sent us so far is just uh, the times that civilians have complained and then the police department investigated those complaints. And what we found is that of the 69 complaints that we received, uh, they mentioned police officers 92 times. So police officers are named 92 times in those 69 complaints. And only three instances could we find uh, a case was sustained or upheld, uh, to not use jargon, by the police department. In all other cases, it doesn't seem as though there were any discipline. Uh, and and, and much, much, many of those cases were, were, uh, were found to be unfounded or the, the police officer was exonerated uh, or the case was, was simply dismissed. Um, uh, so, so quite a number uh, of, of civilian complaints were uh, were ultimately deemed uh, um, uh, unfounded uh, by the Holyoke Police Department. I just want to point out before we move on that that historically police have been able to say no, that is a personnel matter. We can't publicly talk about personnel matters because, like all employers, there's private stuff and we can't go public with it. That statute you're alluding to specifically says, doesn't it, that they're not personnel matters, you can't hide under that. That's correct. The Massachusetts uh, uh, public records law is one of the most opaque in the entire country. There's a bajillion uh, exemptions to it, and yes, one of them is a personnel file exemption. This law clarifies that police misconduct investigations are not personnel records. But Bill. Dusty, I'd like to ask you, as the investigative reporter who's done, I think, more work on this than anyone else in Western Massachusetts, a, a question that may be unfair and may sound silly, but it's this. You report three sustained or complaints out of the 60, almost 70 or 92, depending on how you count it. It's three to five percent. In your story, you report that this covering up of uh, complaints about police is a nationwide and a statewide phenomenon. And I think you say about 10% of complaints are sustained and result in some sort of action against the police officer complained about. So my question is, does this three or 5% rate in Holyoke, does that comparison to the statewide, uh, I think remarkably low uh, rate of 10%, is that a story? Is Holyoke actually doing worse, or is it kind of in the ballpark of what police departments don't do, which is not respond to complaints about police officers? 
That's a good question, Bill. Uh, you know, I will say as somebody who is not like an academic expert on this subject, uh, just somebody who is maybe an expert on how Northampton, Amherst, and Holyoke deal with these matters, uh, yeah, I did reach out to, for our story, as you note, uh, an academic expert who does study this kind of thing. His name is William Terrell. He's at Arizona State, former military police officer himself who, who studied a whole bunch of things, one of which is civilian complaints to police departments nationwide. He's done uh, several studies uh, over, over many years. Years, uh, one of which I think looked at uh, kind of like what we did, but at much bigger police departments and at eight cities across the country. He said that the academic literature shows that the average nationwide is around 10% of complaints that are sustained or, again, not to use police jargon, upheld uh, by a police department. He did note that in many cases it does go as low as 3%. And so uh, to your question about whether Holyoke is unique in that regard, uh, I, I – just based on on what this expert told us, it doesn't seem so. It seems like many departments are are upholding uh, not a whole lot of these uh, civilian complaints that come to them. His study of of eight cities across the country noted that in cities where there was some sort of external accountability mechanism, like a police review commission uh, that that reviewed those investigations and their findings, that more civilian complaints were upheld than in cities that didn't have that. But he was cautious to note that while his study found that, other credible studies have found that those kinds of external accountability mechanisms don't have an impact on the number of uh, civilian complaints that are, that are upheld. So, Dusty Christensen, we, when, in terms of the city's formal response to your story, um, I, I understand that you tried to get the city to respond. And you tried to talk to the mayor, Gar- Josh Garcia. He was on Talk to Talk on Monday, and um, I think that you have heard um, that uh, interview. I did. That conversation. And it, the bottom line is that um, with respect to some of the allegations that are made in your uh, report, he says, well, uh, these were all appropriately, these complaints were all appropriately looked at. There wasn't enough evidence. So that's why the findings were such as they were. So what do you say about that? What do you know about that? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I guess I should first say, as you know, uh, we did try really hard to get um, the mayor on the record. I asked him for a sit-down interview uh, through his office. He, uh, his spokesperson, he declined to sit down to for an interview with us. That's better than the police uh, department's uh, top officials did. They did not even respond to numerous uh, emails and, and phone messages uh, left with them. Um, it's always disheartening, especially, you know, Mayor Garcia, I should, I should note, has always uh, been uh, very open to talking to the press, uh, has always been really great about uh, about hopping on the phone with me about uh, difficult topics uh, and, and answering questions. This is the very first time in my covering of Holyoke that the mayor has not uh, agreed to to talk about something. So I was I, I was uh, interested to hear what he had to say on the show uh, when he came and spoke to you all since he, he didn't speak to us. Um, and right, as you note, it, he, he said that it's a complicated issue uh, from his office's uh, perspective. Um, you know, uh, and I think what he's referring to, uh, in, in, if, if I'm remembering that interview correctly, is that, you know, in many cases, um, you know, uh, he's not just dealing with, uh, you know, a, a judgment that he's making, uh, you know, based on these uh, particular uh, complaints, but there's also uh, very strong police unions involved in the process. And, um, 
you know, and and as well as civil service on the state level, uh, you know, oftentimes if a if a city decides to discipline an officer, they can appeal to civil service. So um, it is a tricky thing for mayors to deal with, and 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 I think that's a little bit of what uh, the mayor was getting at in that conversation. And and this is Dan, and also the mayor mentioned that there were some personnel issues that a lot of these documents uh, are stored in locations they don't have necessarily the personnel to get it, and this is why the delay is happening. I want to know if you can just either respond to that or, or if. If you heard that before in other police departments, then I have a tangential question here about public records request. And uh, I heard you say this, that Massachusetts doesn't have uh, great laws behind that across the state. And I want you to touch on that because I think that's a bigger issue going on across the board about accountability in government. So Dan's Uh, first question pertains to the 18 months that it took for you to get the requests answered. Look, as a as a reporter, I'm always going to be upset about uh, a delay of that long for for information that is so clearly public. Um, If if the mayor was talking about a degree to which these things are not centrally stored, uh, I it seems accurate to me. The log where they track these things was handwritten in the year you know, 2021, when we records requested this as compared to other police departments like Northampton. What he said is like a lot of police departments, we would have to deploy one of the people who are involved on our staff as doing police work to just look for what you're answering. And we don't have that kind of personnel. That's what he said. All I can say is that we made a similar request of Northampton. And, you know, I reported that story like a it must it was well over a year ago uh, and they also had a large number of, of complaints that they have investigated Northampton likes to consider itself a, a department that investigates everything and so they did have a lot of uh, of the of these themselves um, and they turned them over lickety split um, uh, you know all these departments have uh, redacted uh, or, or blacked out parts of the records that are identifying information of the complainant. Um, the state supervisor of records who's in charge of public records stuff in, uh, in Massachusetts, um, uh, when I've appealed those kinds of redactions, has upheld them. But I know, uh, you know public records experts and, and lawyers who think that, that that's un, undue. Um, so that's part of the reason why it took so long. They redacted all these, but I, I don't think they needed to. Mm. And Ian, can you just touch on on the law itself here in Massachusetts it's, it's and compared to the, the entire country? It's so awful. It's so awful. It's consistently uh, regarded as one of the worst. We are the only state in the country where the legislative, executive, and judicial branches all claim to be exempt from the public records law. Our newly elected governor, Maura Healey, just came out uh, publicly, interviewed by Commonwealth Magazine, to say she has no intention of filing legislation to open up her own office to the public records law. Uh, you can look at the public records law. There are so many exemptions that cities... And and, and, and uh, agencies can rely on to withhold records. And even if they don't have a reason, and this happened with me many cases, there's no tooth to the public records law. They could ignore it. And unless you're willing to sue and take them to court, there's no repercussions. Dusty, I, I'm sorry to go off on this, but what's their explanation for that? We just don't want accountability for, from the public and journalism? Uh, <laughs> like any politicians, uh, they say, well, you should just trust us. I pro- you know, more Helios said, I promise to be the most transparent uh, administration uh, to date. Um, I, I don't tend to <laughs> believe those kinds of things but okay yeah we're here with independent investigative reporter dusty christensen who writes about police accountability we're going to be right back with dusty right after these messages stay with us more talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp tag you're it tom hartman weekdays at noon Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three right here on WHMP. 
1240 WHMP. It's a great night out with friends, family, or the office team. The Junior Achievement Bowling Night on Friday, February 17th at Shaker Bowl in East Long Meadow from 6 to 9 p.m. The event includes many contests, giveaways, and fun. Pre-registration is required at jawm.org forward slash bowl. Your support helps JA prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through our in-school and after-school programs. Thank you. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Monitoring your credit score and report is an important tool in protecting your finances and can help you identify errors and prevent fraud. Our GSB Credit Center is just one of the great benefits that comes free with both our free online banking and our free mobile app. And with the GSB mobile app, you can check your score and access your credit report free anytime and from anywhere using your mobile device. And checking your credit report at the GSB Credit Center will not affect your credit score. Sign up today at any of our offices or online. Greenfield Savings Bank. Greenfieldsavings.com. Member FDIC. Member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We continue our conversation with independent investigative reporter Dusty Christensen. He filed a public records request a year and a half ago for public records about the Holyoke Police Department and specifically about civilian complaints made about officers in Holyoke. Finally, some of those records were revealed. They show a tiny percentage of those complaints resulted in any kind of action with regard to any officers and the actions taken against in three of those either 69 or 96, depending on how you count them, incidents um, were really nothing to write home about. I want to ask you, Dusty, because I know you've done these stories about Holyoke and Amherst and Northampton, what you see as being remedies to the situation where the police say, oh no, he said, she said, the police officer said it didn't happen, the civilian said he beat me up a lot, but we don't really know what happened, so we can't sustain it. There's insufficient evidence done. Thank you for, or not thank you for uh, filing this complaint. Nothing happens. 
And as you reported out, nationwide, nothing happens 90 to 95 or more percent of the time. Do you think there is a remedy for this? Would you support, for example, body cams, cruiser cams, independent investigators, police commissions? What do you see as the remedy? That is a great question. I don't know if I'm going to take a stance on what the uh, like appropriate remedy should be. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert on on that. And and what's more, as a journalist, like you know, uh, my job is to dig for the the bigger truth here, and and ultimately, you know, I'll leave it up to the decision makers to to make those decisions. But you're certainly right that there is a whole host of of uh, options on the table at different in different municipalities across the country and, and in our region, um, you know, uh, some police departments uh, decide that body cameras or cities, excuse me, decide that body cameras are something that they want to do to provide a layer of accountability. There's plenty of people, defense attorneys, et cetera, who, um, who view that as an important step. Uh, of course, there are those who also raise civil liberties concerns around, uh, you know, uh, those body cams saying they're an extra layer of surveillance in their community. Um, as we mentioned earlier, there are these external bodies uh, that can hold police accountable, um, you know, and can uh, be an extra check on that internal investigation process. Uh, but as we know in our story about the Holyoke Police Department, um, you know, nationwide, a lot of those bodies don't have subpoena power and are largely toothless. In Pittsfield, uh, just last year, there was a, 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 a police killing of a, of a civilian, and ultimately, uh, many members of their uh, review board resigned uh, after they were unable to get some important documents related to uh, to that uh, killing of Miguel Estrella, 22-year-old um, in that city. Um, uh, Pittsfield police, I believe, just uh, the, the news is, is new that they're going to begin wearing body cameras and have dash cameras in their, uh, in their cars. Um, so that's obviously one option. Uh, some folks uh, have challenged that as, as uh, you know, a civil liberties uh, infringement, while others think it's a, a, an important layer of accountability. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, there's others who think that the whole uh, way we do policing is is uh, uh, deeply racist and unbiased, and it should be thrown entirely out the window altogether. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Uh, Dusty Christensen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your great reportage on this important matter of police uh, accountability. For those who've been listening between uh, 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, we thank you for spending some of your day with us, and we hope you'll be back with us tomorrow for those who are listening in the 4 o'clock hour, coming up after the news break, more Talk to Talk, including breaking news from outer space with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salmad Hamid. This is Talk to Talk. to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? I'm walking, yeah, the thing is I'm talking. It's the music you grew up with. Then you come back to me. WHMP and the news will be right here when you get back. I'm waiting for your company. I'm hoping that you come back to me. The Valley's pure oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.